This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I'm Andy Zax, and today I'll be talking with Jonathan Lethem, who, among other things, is the author of a new book about the Talking Heads album, Fear of Music. Uh, Jonathan, as uh, I suspect uh, listeners will be familiar with, is the author of numerous books, including The Disappointment Artist, Fortress of Solitude, and Omega the Unknown. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks. Nice to be here. The Fear of Music book is part of the Continuum Books 33 and a Third series, which are a series of, of short books, each of which is devoted in some way to a to an album. Yeah. And it was a series, I guess it began, I don't know, six or seven years ago now. Maybe it's even more. And uh, the kind of thing that captivated me immediately. Just the idea uh, was thrilling. They're kind of like baseball cards. Yeah. Flip them, trade them, collect them, argue <laughs> about them, and, and fantasize about them. Were there any other records that were in serious consideration? Now it seems so inevitable um, and complete a, 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 a choice that I don't, I don't really remember if I've sort of played footsie with anything else. Um, you know, I, I write and think a lot about Bob Dylan. And um, at the same time, I, I, I feel like that area is too completely colonized. I mean, I have dozens and dozens of good books about Bob Dylan on my shelves you know, and this is this was true for me. It's funny you mentioned Omega the Unknown, and when Marvel Comics invited me to um, write a comic book, I think of course they were. You know, when I sat down to lunch with a couple of editors there, they were thinking I was going to identify sort of which of their major properties was my my pet. You know, are you going to want to do Thor or Spider Man or the Fantastic Four or maybe the Inhumans or or Ghost Rider? And instead, I named this character that one of the two people sitting there didn't even no existed and, and they had to like sort of go into their annals it was as though i'd been invited into the um the king's castle and offered a a, a selection from his jewel you know from his uh his treasure room and i'd seen an ashtray that his son had made for him in fifth grade and i'd said i want that um and okay so fear of music was not that eccentric a choice but i do suppose that i like to write into zones where there is not a lot of uh you know there there are not so many flares lighting up the landscape already. And I, I didn't feel that I'd ever read anything that accounted for the intensity that I feel around this record or that there had been that much great critical writing about Talking Heads yet. And um, I didn't know what I wanted to do with it, but I felt immediately that the combination of my sort of responsible adult, you know, music critic yearnings to make something smart happen and my really conflicted teenage, you know, kind of, ambivalence, my, my tortured love for the record, that that was a profitable axis, that those two things running together would probably result in something. I Actually, I didn't, I, when I brought up Omega the Unknown, I didn't bring it up lightly or, or in an off-the-cuff way. I, I had actually been thinking about uh, Omega the Unknown, both the original and your version of it, vis-a-vis -vis this record and this book. Uh, because all of those things seem very much to be rooted in a certain kind of they are ways of talking about adolescence. Well, and both of those artifacts are ways of talking about New York City in the 1970s. So, which was, uh, you know, <laughs> we have our subjects thrust upon us. It was an inevitable uh, uh, problem for me and then opportunity for me as a writer that I knew and felt too much about that place in that time. Um, so, yeah, they're connected for me, absolutely. In a sense, and I think you even, you say, you say this very early on in the book, um, 
you weren't really interested in facts, uh, the kind of facts that won't do what you want them to right. in a David right. Burnian <laughs> sense, um, that, that you really were interested in writing this from the inside out. Yeah. I, I, you know, I had just done a, a, a monograph um, on a film. I wrote a, a short book in the very much the same kind of register uh, a, about a John Carpenter film called They Live. And I'd let myself do a certain amount of research, but I hadn't gone to any first sources. I didn't, you know, talk to John Carpenter about his, his movie. And I, I liked most in that process what came out of my own projections and just kind of abiding with the film, watching it again and again and again and, and letting it sort of um, write about itself as much as I could. And so I thought, I'm going to try to take that process uh, take that procedure even further with fear of music, which anyway is not a narrative. It's it's not a um, you know it's 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 not something that functions uh, in the realm of news or nonfiction or events. It's not a it's not a topic in in a you know in a in a nonfiction project. I wanted to write about it as a an artwork and try to reply to it on its terms as much as I could. Just put language to it. Maybe then we should talk, at least at the beginning, a little bit about how you came to this record initially, sure. since that that figures both it's that's, huge, that's yeah. both a part of the book and a part of the composition thereof, and a part right. of the perspective that 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 happens throughout the book. Yeah. So I let myself go ahead and make it completely personal because it was. I really wasn't going to be able to avoid that, so I I wore it on my sleeve. And I mean, the thing about <laughs> fear of music, and and I conjure this up you know, pretty much in the opening pages so that uh, I'll be forced to deal with it and I'll force the reader to deal with it, is that I was 15 years old. I lived in the city where the record was made. I was in a period of intense uh, conflict and transformation and yearning. And this artifact arrives, and it's as though designed perfectly to um, identify and... uh, and you know, activate my my uh, deepest yearnings and anxieties. It's basically saying your fear is real, but it can be made into a kind of um, uh, uh, armor, or possibly even into weaponry, because the record's very aggressive in a lot of ways. Uh, your whiteness is uh, something you can feel kind of awkwardly wonderful about, instead of uh, needing to get rid of somehow, and um, you know, and and the place you live can be celebrated and um, and ironized and uh, and and described in terms you know that will make it seem really special, even if it isn't, isn't easy to be to be where you are right now. Um, I was, you know, specifically uh, a kid who had grown up with two kinds of music. I'd grown up with my parents' record collection, which was like good high hippie rock music, you know, Eric Clapton records and and uh, lots of Dylan and Beatles and, and you know, listening to Between the Buttons uh, just because it was, you know, it had a cool jacket, so I put it on. And I was steeped in this stuff, but the, the music of my environment and the music of the present life was the music of the street. And it was funk and soul and disco and the very, very early stirrings of hip-hop and I was enthralled by this material. It was really, really 
reaching very deep inside of me, but it was also completely problematic. I had to resist it because I was also simultaneously in an environment that was telling me again and again and again that it wasn't for me. You know, it was, I was being informed that I was white and not kind of a candidate for this cult, this culture that was around me. And this was baffling. I mean, it obviously was something that I was going to process later in my writing. And also that the, the music w- was something, you know, I would devote myself to later in the form of uh, things like writing about James Brown or, or inventing imaginary soul musicians, uh, you know, and, 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 and trying to um, bring them even closer to me as I did in Fortress of Solitude. But at the time, I kind of needed something that was my own in in this double sense. I mean, it's very typical for someone my age. I was born in 1964 to have parents who were sort of cool and sort of owned rock and roll. And then punk is very important because punk be- can become something that's not your parents' music. So I did, in a very typical way, grab on to the Ramones and, and you know, and and the clash and Elvis Costello and uh all that stuff because it was specifically not in my parents record collection but I had this other anxiety to assuage and it was in some ways a much more um intense crisis and that was I needed to it to be okay to be uh awkward bookish and white and still want to feel cool and talking heads just you know absolutely uh you know, opened up a whole arena for 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 possible attitudes, <laughs> ways of reversing my anxieties and, and making them into something um, kind of uh, au courant. Uh, and at the same time, of course, in retrospect, I can see they pulled this wonderful extra trick, this double operation, because their music was actually secretly engaged with all sorts of funk and disco and and soul, and yet. Uh, I could, so I could nourish the thing that I thought I was, um, I was pulling away from. I could have it all in some form. Now, could I articulate any of this then? Not on your life. Uh, but the record sure seemed kind of essential to me. It seemed to say things about, um, about New York in 1979 and about feeling, you know, disastrous, feeling uh, afraid and also feeling paranoid that were um, things I'd only been able to locate in either myself or in books to that point. And it was doing it in like danceable form. And, uh, and, you know, it's very important to have like a rock band that's really yours, that's really your own. So I I had no reservations. I jumped at this, uh, this artifact with everything I had. And I've joked, you know, uh, it was like, you know, um, the apes in 2001 seeing the the the, uh, the black monolith appear and then they touch it and they're allowed to begin their evolution, you know, in sincerity. Uh, it was the thing I needed at the time. Well, before before even the record, there's a there's a kind of a pre artifact that looms pretty large for you with with this album and it's interesting to me because it's a it's a radio spot but um just as interesting is the idea that it's a radio spot for an album called Fear of Music that does not really contain much in the way of music it's a it's a text based right thing can right. you yeah talk about it, that? it was a it was this 
talisman for me. And I mean, it was the it was the foreshadowing of the record's arrival in my life was the the radio station I was listening to those days, uh, WNEW. I just figured out to listen to contemporary radio instead of digging in my parents' record collection or just, you know, hearing what was always around me. And that, you know, summer, as they built up towards the record's release in New York, they played this radio spot a lot. And it was a real conundrum because it was sort of edgy and authoritative and totally gnomic. It didn't it didn't give you anything. It just said that something might be possible uh, called fear of music. And so you just were sort of stuck anticipating uh, this arrival without being given any, you know, it didn't have any clips. There weren't any snippets of music in it. Um, and it didn't identify itself. You know, I mean, later you'd know that was David Byrne's voice, massively manipulated. But it was, you know, it had a lot of dead air, too, for anything on the radio. For yeah. 1970s rock radio, you know, have, have a, a heartbeat of silence was totally arresting. Talking Heads have a new album. It's called Fear of Music. Talking Heads have a new album. It's called Fear of Music. Talking Heads have a new album. It's called Fear of Music. Talking Heads have a new album. It's called Fear of Music. I think it's just him speaking through a harmonizer or some kind of an, a primitive digital delay system um, that the like the lexicon which he and Eno were about to use to make uh, uh, My Life in the Bush. Well, it all sounds so familiar now, but at the time it was not familiar. And, and you know, it, I, that, that radio spot also reminds me of, you know, what people were going to latch on to when they made, you know, uh, Laurie Anderson's um, Oh, Superman, a hit a little while later. Uh, it was just like, that sounds cool. <laughs> I sort of I, I admire the branding of that radio spot and the kind of the the plainness of it, which seems to which seems reflected in a lot of Talking Heads lyrics of the period, and it it even continued through. It's funny I didn't hear that the Fear of Music radio spot went past me entirely. I didn't hear it, but they did a similar thing for Remain in Light, the following record, which uses basically the same structure. The voiceover is exactly the same. Talking Heads have a new album. It's called Remain in Light. Um, but this time it's, there's actual music, uh, and yet it's a piece of music that wouldn't be heard in its entirety for another 20, 25 years until I hauled it out of the tape vault, essentially. Wow, really? Yeah, that's a, they, they used an unreleased track, something that hadn't made the album. Will you put this on the podcast so I can hear it too? Sure, definitely. Talking Pets have a new album, it's called Remain in Light. Talking You know, the, the thing about that spot, I mean, we're really lingering on something that's not even the album here, right? But um, it kind of embedded a, 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 you know, if you were if you were able to understand it, and I only was in retrospect, it embedded a fact about the album uh, in, in microcosm, which is that it was going to be very plain and very opaque at the same time. You were going to be apparently given... Uh, all the facts in the case, and yet you'd end up with no solution to the mystery. It's interesting. Words obviously have a lot of weight on Talking Heads records, more more than they might normally. And it it seems to me in reading the book, you've done a, a fairly amazing job of unpacking a lot of these songs in a lot of different ways. And, and there's a lot of 
you ask a lot of questions about what things might mean or how they might mean, and then you doubt your own interpretations of what those things might mean. Well, I am an English professor now in a department that, that values close reading above all. I mean, I wanted to do, I wanted to go ahead and do lyric analysis, but I wanted it to be the kind that uh, suspends in its own, um, what, what would I say? Suspends in its own uh, atmosphere the way lyrics suspend within the atmosphere of music. I often think that with Talking Heads lyrics, one of the most interesting things about them is that and it's one of the most radical things about the band during this period, from my perspective, is that by the late 70s, we'd been through 10 years of, of rock as art. That that was now kind of, that was settled law by that point. And so the the dominant critical stance of that period of time would have been to look deeply into the lyrics and, and find some kind of inner resonance and, and unpack them. Dylan probably was where a lot of that began, as as you know. But... Burns' lyrics, particularly on Fear of Music, seem to resist that at a certain level. They seem very much, uh, they just are the things that they are. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think, I think that's right. I mean, one of the interesting things about the, the, the band and, and this record uh, is that it's so, um, it's in such an engagement with uh, the conceptual visual arts world. I mean, it really wants to be like a series of paintings, like almost like Ed Russia, where words are painted on a canvas so that they're emblems rather than language or rather than communicative language. And, um, you know, Byrne, I think, was making a conscious effort uh, to quit being personal, you know, take take the uh, identifiable, um, you know, quasi-Byrne narrator, the, the neurotic lover and the 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 sometimes brittle, chilly social critic, and the sometimes sarcastic uh, friend of the earlier two records, take him out and instead replace him with this kind of um, collective voice that was the band, or it was, uh, you know, it was the voice of New York, or it was the voice of fear itself, or it was the voice of, um, you know. Uh, objects trying to figure themselves out, you know, the voice of paper or the voice of air. He didn't want to be in the songs anymore. And so there's a lot of refusal, a lot of um, withholding and and edging out of the frame going on. They're also uh, strangely spare. I mean, for for such a writerly album, it's not a wordy album at all. Um, There's not a lot of lyrics on the lyric sheet. For those who don't know or who may not be familiar with the record, it's probably worth mentioning at this point that most of the songs on the album consist of very simple nouns. The titles are are often just simply one word, paper, mind, drugs, animals. Yeah, it's like it's trying to be some sort of um, incisive catalog of the material uh, world. Of course, it's in- totally incomplete, and it has strange, you know, kind of slippages. There are abstractions on the list, and and things like drugs or electric guitar that wouldn't seem to qualify it, you know, on a, on a traditional table of elements. Um, and, you know, I think that puts the album in a very strange space. It's again, it's like claiming an authority. And then when you look closer, the authority is extremely, uh, shaky or very, you know, very, um, very elusive. And, uh, it also reminds you of, 
you know, I mean, one of one of the things I hadn't ever thought growing up that I thought about once I was <laughs> looking at the record to write about it is it makes you think about um, the biggest rock album of the 70s, which is uh, Dark Side of the Moon, which is, you know, time, money. And, you know, it's it's another catalog of absolutes. And and I, I can't help but thinking that that joke is very uneasily in the mix there. You know, when um, when he sings mind, the first two elements that won't change you are time won't change you and money won't change you. And, you know, uh, Pink Floyd was sort of meant at the time to be the thing that any cool music was trying to be very far away from, you know. Uh, and yet, of course, in a lot of ways, from this distance... There's a kind of conceptual edge, a chilliness, uh, an intensity about, you know, uh, topical, you know, uh, alienation that's not really that, you know, utterly removed. I think I think the two things can, can be seen as a little closer together than I certainly ever would have granted at the time. This is Andy Zaks for the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm talking today with Jonathan Lethem, who is the author of Talking Heads, Fear of Music, a 33 and a third book. We should probably, before we get too far down the road of, of talking about this record as just some kind of text yeah, structure yeah. thing, <laughs> maybe... Wind me up and watch me watch me write it again in front maybe, of you. I mean, obviously, the, the temptation <laughs> is there for, for pretty yeah. obvious reasons. Maybe it would be helpful, productive even, to talk about the sound of this record yeah, for a few yeah. minutes before we get back into the... the textual oh, rabbit hole no well that's the thing is once i you know once i begin uh unpacking the record and, and this is something else a, a kind of authority i wanted to disable in front of you and i try to do it a couple in a couple of places in the book you know i didn't respond to this record as a set of concepts that i could uh you know interact with conceptually i was fucking staggered by this sort of slab of uh, attitude and fear and energy that had come in my direction. And uh, the first thing and the central thing was the way, the, the way it just activated, you know, uh, unusual emotions. I mean, the power of its ambivalence. <laughs> One of the things that's so striking to me about this record is how it, um, you know, rock and roll hadn't done a tremendous amount with diffident feeling. Uh, until the talking heads came along. I think, you know, I, I really think the, the, the secret motif in fear of music is, um, not quite, I'm not ready. Uh, I don't want to do either thing, you know, um, it, it's, it's, uh, hedging, splitting the difference, being bored, waiting, uh, asking someone else to wait, uh, unresolved, anxiety and you know it's not all hate and love it's it's um uh i'm i'm a little creeped out i'm 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 not sure but that's okay there's there's a certain flatness to a lot of the affect uh, in (laughs) those early talking heads records i i think rightly or wrongly i always think about i think about elliot gould as philip marlowe in the long goodbye it's okay with me. Yeah. It's all right. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Both both are good choice. Yeah, I'm fine. sure that was a defensive maneuver that I needed to incorporate very deeply was kind of, um, can we just not be intense 
for a minute, please. <laughs> Growing up with the combination of um, the dystopian city and my hippie parents, you know, the idealism and the disillusionment, I just sometimes wanted things to be sort of uh, not that intense once in a while. <laughs> and the, one of the things David Byrne enables in you is the, the, the freedom to request, you know, talk to your analyst. Isn't that what he's paid for? Um, and at the same time, make that sensation, make that expression very urgent, make it musically urgent, make it seem like a passionate position, a conviction, uh, to be, uh, diffident. Um, and yeah, I mean, the sound of the record was, uh, was monumental for me. And I, you know, again, these are things I've figured out in retrospect. Why did it sound different from the first two records for me? You know, I, I'd heard, uh, certainly heard. Uh, Psycho Killer and Take Me to the River on the radio before this album came along. And I was, you know, able to like those songs. And then I, when I filled in the gaps, you know, okay, I have a favorite band. I better hear all their records. So I got the earlier records, and they're terrific records. But in some ways, I think they sound to me, even with Eno uh, getting involved in Buildings and Food, they sound to me ultimately like really dark singer-songwriter records. Like, the smart guy brings the notebook with the song to the band and they figure out how to play it. And the thing about the sound of Fear of Music is that it's a process-based artifact. It comes out of the process that was uh, beginning to emerge between Byrne and Eno, where they made music by daring each other to do weird things in the studio, and it was also made by the process of the band feeling its oats. They'd been on the road. They'd added Jerry Harrison. They were now able to do new things as musicians and feel confident as musicians. And so there were these songs that sounded more like a band jamming, and then the song grows out of that process. And Byrne says specifically, one of my small pieces of you know almost accidental research, Byrne says that he'd you know he'd written for a different band because the first two albums worth of songs were written for the tentative threesome. And then once Jerry Harrison joins the band, the new songs were written knowing what they were capable of. And so it's just a more, um, uh, I hate the word organic, especially with a, a, an artifact that wants so desperately to put ideas like the organic into very, very deep, ironic scare quotes. But it's, uh, it's an album that, you know, seeped into being or accrued or was discovered by a process. And that energy is what, for me, makes it so um, extraordinarily intense. Yeah, see, to me, this is a record that at some level is all about necessity. Um, as you mentioned, the first two records, the first two Talking Heads records, basically, and I can tell you, having heard all the the, the tapes that go with the albums, all of that material, most of what was on the second record was demoed for the first. Um, virtually everything on the second Talking Heads record, I think with the exception of uh, Take Me to the River came late and the big country I don't think had been attempted before and maybe found a job. So except for those three songs, everything on more songs about buildings and food was old, uh, predated the first record. Well, the title confesses it. Right. Uh, so those records, those records are kind of of a piece. Although sonically, 
the Eno influence begins to creep in on the second record, I think that tends to make it a stronger record than it might otherwise have been perceived as. Those were not a lot of those. Those were not the best songs sort of that the, the band had. Of B songs yeah. for sure. Yeah, um, it's a classic record to me of a band that that makes a first record. There's that that old saw about you have your entire life to write right. your first record or your first <laughs> book, and then yeah. suddenly there's a record company going, "Hey, we need some product. Give us another one." Yeah, just like that. We love that first one. Give us that. So more songs about buildings and food is a pretty good response at coming up with something else. It's both. It both looks backward because most of the material is old, and it looks forward because the Eno collaboration has started to kick in. Um, Fear of Music is the first Talking Heads record that was written entirely from scratch, or nearly entirely from scratch. So, in a sense, there's a real tension there. What what are we going to come up with? we got to come up with something, because the cupboard is completely bare. So for the first time, they have to reinvent themselves. And that there's a tension to that. Yeah. Of, well, that's I, I think very much part of what I mean when I say it's it, the sound. It's the sound of a process, and you know, another thing you can't help hearing is the anxiety of a possibly blocked writer. There's a lot of you know notebook references. There's a lot of you know uh, what good is the writing I'm doing here? And then of course there's the song that's specifically hostile to lyric writing. You know, Ezimbra is a kind of attack on the whole premise that the songs need need good lyrics uh, that make sense. And, you know, even the songs that pretend to be kind of monumentally, uh, you know, that, that make a gesture towards endlessness, like cities. When you hear cities uh, and then you think about that song, you might imagine it name checks and characterizes dozens of locations. In fact, it barely gets to three. Think of London, small city. Life During Wartime plays that same sleight of hand. It has those non-repeating couplets that fade out on the, on the, on, you know, at the end of the song, as if it might go on forever. There's ain't no party! This record, to me, having thought about it from the outside in rather than the other way around, it finally dawned on me that this record, in, coupled with that process, that that voracious need for new material and and that need for reinvention and that need to come up with something right now, real fast, in a sense, fear of music to me is a kind of a. It's encoded somehow, but it. But it's 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 actually a kind of a fairly old rock band trope. It's it's the record that was written on the road, or the record that came about because right. of the road. It's Absolutely. very it, it feels very much <laughs> like a response to touring. Um, and there's a the hermetic quality of the record to me mimics the hermetic quality of of being in a tour bus. Sure, the hotel room, the problem of uh, where am I tonight? You know, right? And you you hear that in all of those yeah, songs, absolutely. You know, cities. I think you touch on this in the book. Yeah. That that's certainly a kind of a that's a band on tour song in a yeah. sense. Well, and so is life during wartime. Right. I mean, the war. T- the, so the question with life during wartime: What's the war? You know, is the war? Uh, you know, teenage sexuality. Is this a, a song about what it's like to? explode into adulthood and find it like a, a 
battlefield strewn with casualties? Or is it a future war? Is it nuclear apocalypse? Is it just the present life of urban America? Or is it, in fact, the campaign of a rock tour? You know, lo- you know load up the van. You know, uh, don't get exhausted. I'll do some driving. It's just this sort of like, you know, little band of outcasts coping, but but proud that they can cope and moving on to the next destination and, you know, changing their costumes and doing it again. Right. It, it's very much a band on the run kind of, <laughs> of, of thing. Yeah. I, one of the one of the structuring things in your book is you ask a lot of questions. I mean, you quite literally ask questions. Those are those are small yeah. chapters in the book. Uh, is Fear of Music a Talking Heads record? Uh, is Fear of Music a David Byrne album? Questions like that. And I want to talk about some of those in a moment, but this brings one of them to mind, because at one point you ask, is, is Fear of Music a New York album? And I think my answer to your question would be that it's kind of an album that has a, it's an absence of New York album. I think that's great. I think that's that's part of it, yeah. And I mean, the, the, the funny thing is I didn't quite get to that exact thought, but I recognize it totally, and I feel like I almost produced it by implication. And for me personally... I'm a writer who writes about New York all the time, but I do it best when I'm in, for example, Claremont, California, or, you know, I'm writing about Queens every day when I wake up now. Queen, that's, uh, you know, the borough Queens, I should say. Um, and I've done this again and again. Somehow the exile from the place makes it uh, incredibly vivid for me, and not only in a nostalgic or pleasant way, but the 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 uh, angst associated with it is very much with me in a day-to-day way even when I'm not there, or more so. Because this really does feel like a record about about absence and sure. shifting and yeah. velocity and change. And so uh, that that experience of being on the road, of touring, of being somewhere else every night, of being in a different hotel room, so that you really can understand why heaven would be a place where nothing ever happens because it's a record that came out of a period where everything must have seemed like it was happening all at once. Oh, and I, I can completely put that into the kind of tour bus you know, narrative. Heaven is that bar in Cleveland where everything stopped and we just played pool and drank some beers and acted like friends again for a few hours. And then, you know, then then the carousel started over again. But I remember Heaven. It was good. is the most or feels the most New York ocentric on the record uh, maybe that's just the CBG well and, yeah the and big Mud reference Club. in the middle of it yeah. but but there's also a kind of there's certainly an absence in that song too something has happened we're not quite privy to what's what's generated this situation that the narrator finds himself in but he's in the middle of it it's happening he's changing and so the song is kind of a catalog of, of survival strategies. Well, and, and it actually also says specifically, all the cities are the same now. It doesn't matter anymore. It, it has a kind of funny argument with cities, which I think is the, obviously the other candidate for being a New York song. Cities is the absent protagonist of, of, of uh, excuse me, New York is the absent protagonist of the song Cities because this catalog of alternatives implicitly ge- is generated by someone who has a, a home base, and, a, and an attitude that goes with it, <laughs> which is that sort of like, I can't really believe any of these other places are, are credible. 
Um, I'm going to try. I'm going to give it my best. But when you live in New York, no, no other city is a city. No other city qualifies. But the argument between those two songs is um, city says cities are specific, in, including, I think, the implicit uh, New York. And Life During Wartime says, actually, we're just arriving at a moment where they're all they're all they're all flattened out, whether a bomb fell or just the the nature of our crisis, internal or external. Uh, is such that it it really doesn't matter anymore. Just find yourself an ice factory and hole up. There's actually an interesting correspondence between cities and and don't worry about the government on the first record, which is a song that's very concerned with picking the right building to live in. So by album three, we've we've moved to a larger scope where where yeah. the choice of finding a city is is becomes the most important thing. Well, I got really into this uh, this um, question. I began looking at. Um, references to buildings throughout uh, Talking Heads' career, and it's actually incredible how how much this weird equation between body and city uh, is propagated. You know, we all need we all need buildings to help us along, and uh, my love is a building on fire, or love goes out to a building on fire, and um, uh, you know, um, you know, and remain in light. You know, um, this is not my beautiful house. The sense that a building is a kind of shell, like an exoskeleton or an extra body, that you need to somehow stabilize, make functional, make uh, reflect who you are. Uh, there's this tremendous anxiety. And then, you, of course, you get David Byrne in the giant suit, who's made his, ho- his body into a kind of housing that's externalized with space between his actual body and the walls of the suit. And then you get, you know, the, the sort of insipid... False resolution in uh, true stories is, uh, you know, the John Goodman song. Um, uh, we're growing big as a house, and that's all fine. You know, it's like uh, an anorexic has resolved his problem. The house and the body can be as one. You know, I can get as big as that white suit I once wore, and I'll be my own building now. I don't need to find the right building. I can just be the building. Let me make it. Let me draw a connection yeah. here between buildings, architecture, the body, as you've just linked it, and you. And there are moments in the book, you've touched on it just speaking here, and you touch on it in the book at a little greater length, but I wanted to get a bit more from you on this. There's, there's a certain... There might be a sense that a lot of the music on Fear of Music is a kind of a is a kind of a an uncomfortable white guy idea of what funk music sounds like or what James Brown music sounds like or African music or, or maybe some idealized idea of what African music might sound like if we'd ever actually heard any of it, which we probably haven't. And that brings me back to adolescent you. Sure, yeah, and when I refer to myself in the book, I, 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 I call myself the kid in the room, that kid in the room. It's like the problem of being... Um, you know, uh, having an intelligence and a sensibility that's wanting to migrate outward, but a body that's completely afraid to step outside the door. So I, yeah, so I think about, because we're, I think I'm a little bit younger than you, but not by much. And so that, that period of time in my life, I think about, I think about going to bar mitzvahs on weekends (laughs) and being worried about dancing. Uh, there's that whole sort of early teenage body anxiety yeah, about moving moving in space and oh moving your hips in space sure yeah and so a lot of this a lot of talking heads music seems to at least recognize that 
dilemma, or at least it, oh, it, completely. It, it, it's it's a kind of weird tableau. The music and the the presenta- self presentation of 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 the lead singer and some of the concepts or jokes embedded in the songs seem to be making some sort of argument about you know, am I allowed to have a body, or or if I'm not allowed. Uh, could this head just dance on its own? Could the head dance? Is it okay if only the head dances? Uh, I think that that's totally in there. It's sort of like um, a a, uh, a workaround <laughs> to uh, you know genuine physicality. Um, and uh, I mean, you know, I was I wanted I wanted all the solutions. I wanted a workaround, and I also wanted to be taught how to dance. And I was, you know, I mean, to my credit, I guess I was I wasn't completely. Uh, Stuck in the room, I did make forays, and I, you know, I went to talking head shows, and I got up in the in the aisles and danced. So the 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 proposition was, you know, not only uh, enabling the very most, uh, you know, uh, autistic uh, nerve in its listener. It was also uh, making fun of it enough to to spring him out of his chair and and cavort around the room at the same time and i think that was that was the the magic gift of the record you're listening to the los angeles review of books podcast i'm andy zacks and today we're talking with jonathan letham who is the author of talking heads fear of music a 33 and a third book like you i probably came to things like well in fact i know i came to things like james brown and p-funk later maybe not as a result of this record but but later it wasn't really a part of of my musical universe at age 13, 14. It, it just simply wasn't. It was somewhere else. Yeah. Well, see, for me, it was slightly different because I, I was the involuntary recipient and, of course, eventually unbelievably grateful recipient of ambient funk. I did know those records. I knew them because I couldn't not. They were they were the uh, the sound of... of uh, that part of Brooklyn. And, um, I was in a weird, uh, you know, kind of dissociative tension about how much they spoke to me and how little I was supposed to allow them to speak with, speak to me because I, I felt restricted from them and moved by them all at once. But that meant for me when I, you know, when, of course I did make my deliberate attachment, (laughs) you know, my very proud attachment to Al Green and, and James Brown and all of these things that I, that I, you know, not known to care for or how much I could care for them um, uh, for a while. I still kept them weirdly quarantined from talking heads. I thought uh, it was a choice. It was a very false choice. In, in fact, the two things were were in eager dialogue. And the, the band was eventually going to confront me with that uh, by converging with black music in the most literal sense by grabbing onto it and throwing it on stage, you know? So, um, you know, if I wasn't able to fix that, that bifurcation for myself, it turned out talking heads was also going to be a vehicle that, that would help me, you know, uh, grow out of, out of this false choice. But, um, it still was a, a shocking thing to me because the fear of music songs sound so sounded so absolutely themselves until I began to kind of study them in a slightly different way for the book. But when I put on, you should do this in the podcast, put on uh, animals and um, super bad back to back and realized how utterly these two things were, were one. Mm-hmm. 
It was really like a kind of uh, very, very uh, happy magic for me to just, uh, you know, very sweet reconciliation to realize that I, I'd, I'd been, you know, liking James Brown both before and after I thought I uh, had, had, had been listening to him. Right. It's a little <laughs> bit like, did you ever have the experience of a, as a kid of, did you read Mad Magazine? I did. Did you have that experience? You must have of of having read those movie satires about movies that you weren't going to maybe see for another four or five years, <laughs> and that was kind of your only experience of of a movie like Clockwork Orange, say. Oh yeah, Clockwork Orange specifically. Um, but the even odder fate is that there are some films that I find myself referencing in uh, in in you know film buff contexts as if I know them. Uh, that I never saw. I only memorized, you know, like Summer of 42, uh, which, you know, for some reason that the, the Mad Magazine satire of Summer of 42 I, was I remember that, that as well. And I, 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 well, read it, it had, I read it before I saw the movie. It had a, you know, a mature woman, you know, uh, having sex with a teenage boy. So there was probably a reason that it was like extra, uh, you know, worth my attention. Mm-hmm. But I really, you know, feel like I can talk about that film, but I've never seen a frame of it uh, Except for the frames that play in the background in uh, in Stanley Kubrick's um, uh, The Shining, because at one point <laughs> the TV is on and it's the summer summer of forty two. <laughs> the secret history of the summer of forty two. But but there's something of that experience to later being able to put all the pieces together oh, yeah, and say, it's great. I mean, just, oh my god, yeah. that's that's yeah. super bad. That's yeah. Well, and just in a more general sense, just being able to listen with different ears and say, oh, gosh, I thought, you know, I, I, I felt at the time because I wanted the band to emblematize, you know, a new idea for me. So I felt that in some way I credited Talking Heads with having invented everything about their sound and attitude. It just sounded like the sound of the future to me. And I really just, you know, I galvanized my sense of the of of what was good about it by claiming that it had no precedence of any kind (laughs) so now you know when i hear it and i suddenly think well wait a minute there's a there's there is dylan in there and there's you know the ohio fruit gum company and there's buddy holly it's just completely connected to the music that came before it and in the most charming way builds on it and of course jonathan richmond uh and and it's such a sweet reconciliation to because you're simultaneously seeing things you love uh, mingling in a way you hadn't permitted yourself to see, and you're letting go of your own idiotic uh, quarantines and biases that one thing is somehow on a hierarchy of you know uh, the cutting edge in a way that that some other thing isn't you know so guilty pleasures suddenly stop being guilty and exalted pleasures suddenly stop being exalted and you just realize they're all fine they're all pleasures <laughs> at the time there was that year zero idea that that idea oh, that you yeah, did I wanted have it all to, to start over that you you did have to make as Byrne talked about later in a song a clean break with things yeah. and it's interesting because if you listen to the multi-track tapes which you can't for uh the first record a lot of there's a lot of stuff on that record. That record was mixed very subtractively. They recorded a lot more stuff than they actually used, not in terms of songs, but in terms of actual sound information that could have been on that record. And so the real radical break 
and the the break that kind of severs them from a lot of what had gone before was their refusal to use a lot of the sweetening. Yeah, I'm sure. Of that, course. That they might have used had they been a more ordinary sort well, of band Well, there's still recording. that sweetened version of Psycho Killer that circulates. The Arthur Russell yeah, cello version? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, you can hear them tussling with that influence on on the first record. Uh, even if it was, mo- you know, if it was largely suppressed, you can still hear that it was a problem. I can't seem to face up to the fact I'm tense and nervous and I can't relax I can't sleep cause my bed's on fire Don't touch me, I'm a real live wire A few of those things have since leaked out. I put a few of them out on uh, some things on box sets and, and other reissues. There's New Feeling with a big horn section. There's, um, I think the version of the version of pulled up with the big horn section has yet to surface any place, but that's that's really odd. It's funny you mentioned uh, pulled up because I mean even though sweetness was being banished, it still of course existed in some of the f- song forms, and you have you do have uh, some more positive. I mean we think of them as the alienated. Uh, band, right? Uh, but th- we have some very positive songs, like you know, pulled up or or you know, got a job, found a job uh, in the, on those early records. Um, you know, things are possible, even if we th- suspect it may have a slightly sarcastic element. You know, uh, thank you for sending me an angel. There's this like disarming uh, positivity to some of those songs. And one of the things I felt about Fear of Music, uh, you know, and of course the title cues this was there was a rejection of any. Uh, you know, uh, gesture towards sweetness or possibility or connection in the earlier records, and I even saw some outright doubles, some ref- some some you know some songs that seemed to re- be refusing specific other songs. You know, if if uh, Burn was a validator, a very sweet validator of the power of you know the pen of of being an author in a song like um, uh, the book I read. Well, in Fear of Music, he goes out of, out of his way to say, you know, books, notebooks, hopeless, no longer of use. Forget them. Burn them. Uh, and, you know... Or uh, paper becomes Don't useful. bother to put it on, on paper. And, you know, if someone was capable of pulling someone else up, you know, I was down in the dumps and you pulled me up, which is explicitly about, you know, sort of like, wow, you reached out and it worked. Uh, well, then, you know, I'm trying to find a way to change your mind, but it's not going to happen. Can't get there. You're over there. I'm over here. Forget it. I'm not going to pull you up. You know, it was a cancellation of the earlier thought. I'm going back to my corner of the tour bus, <laughs> and I'm going to sit there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, oh, you know, I want to backtrack for just a second. We were talking about the way, the thing that happens when you um, allow yourself to hear those uh, resonances and connections, you know, the most extreme being, you know, something like, um, oh, Animals is just essentially a James Brown song. And, I, you know, I... I've become quite a a fanatic for finding those those um, connections and doubles and pointing them out. And there's a bunch of moments in the book where I I stop, you know, to to linger on something like that. Uh, and I think it it's you know I guess for me probably because I'm very conscious of the 
urgence, the urgencies and risks of categorical thinking that boundaries around things and quarantines between things. You know, these are ideas that I'm very responsive to. I'm very anxious about. And then when I notice them, you know, rising up, I tend to put myself in the opposite camp. No, let's not. Let's make them all be together. Let's let's break down the boundaries. Let's stop thinking there's a, a useful hierarchy here and notice that these things are all kind of valuable or equally um, useless and silly, but we like them anyway. You know, let's just stop having these uh, high-low standards or these genre uh, restrictions. And so um, I think that my, my permanent thrill in finding the way, you know, discovering the way musicians... Uh, are constantly in dialogue with all sorts of other unlikely sources and that, you know, all music is sort of wanting to to kind of club up together and just, just you know, uh, ignore ignore the boundaries or ignore the, the, the restrictions of the radio dial. Seems very, uh, I guess in a way it's a kind of a, 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 a political, communistic political yearning. You know, why can't we all just live together? <laughs> and yet there there does come a point in the book where you ask the question and and I think it gets a guardedly affirmative response from you is this a science fiction record mm-hmm. so there's a certain right. genre that, yeah. that you're yoking this Oh well album I was very to... excited at the way it seemed to you know um reference uh cool ideas about the future you know I mean you get sort of like dystopian gestures and uh gestures towards technology and you know um there's something uh about it that's you know anti-nostalgic and i was very i found that texture very appealing i liked stanley kubrick movies and i liked you know um brian eno records and i liked uh other things in cool culture that seemed to want to connect to the embarrassing uh, but very fertile arena of pulp science fiction, which I was also so responsive to, you know, uh, trashy paperbacks and the Twilight Zone reruns that were on Channel 11 uh, every night. And and then writers who, of course, eventually became very essential to me, like J.G. Ballard and Philip K. Dick. And I felt that there was some uh, way in which Fear of Music was, was allying itself uh, to this stuff. Right. Well, those are all writers that you sort of mentioned that the kid in his room was reading sure. while listening to this Absolutely. record. And, and yeah. my my reading list at that point in time probably wasn't terribly dissimilar to yours. Although in thinking about it and really thinking about it now, it this feels to me more, is Fear of Music a noir record? It is also that, of course. And, I, and you know, and this was one of the things I, I liked best. I, I didn't want to read utopian science fiction. I wanted to read uh, the dark stuff. And, and as soon as I found noir which took me a little longer you know the the american crime writers and the 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 1940s and 50s films that flavor was one that i was uh completely uh captivated by and wanted to wanted to own and build into my body but maybe i i found it a little after i found fear of music so i didn't i wouldn't have in in arranging my idea of what kind of record it was it wouldn't have seemed as obvious to me uh, you know, later on, I could see, you know, with someone, someone like, you know, Wall of Voodoo with the Stan Ridgeway music, I would think, oh, he wants to be a noir. This wants, this is wants to be rock, you know, rock noir. Uh, and, Although there was a kitschiness to that. Uh, yeah, but... absolutely kitschy. Yeah. Uh, but um, 
but it so it wasn't a reference that I applied in my first uh, you know constructing my first image of what uh, talking heads were doing. But I also was you know I was confused about what was noir and what was reportage because New York was kind of noir in that period, and um, you know that's what you see in the backdrop of the panels of Omega the Unknown comics was this sort of you know. Uh, true crime element that was just really definitive, um, uh, you know, picture of that place, that time and place. Is there also a sense in which we might talk about Fear of Music as a Brian Eno record? Is that fair? Yeah, well, I think that that tension is in there. And it's one of the things that, to me, again, in retrospect, I mean, I I just felt when I listened to the record, I'm listening to a great band. Oh, Brian Eno produced this. I had not really gotten my head around how much of the oral, the sonic landscape had to do with things that he and Byrne were discovering together or some other things that he might have just simply been laying on, you know, bringing from his past uh, activities into the, into this room. But now when I listen to it, and of course knowing also where uh, that collaboration was going to go and how much it was going to in some ways overtake the narrative of four musicians working together and turn into a narrative of... Uh, two weirdos working together, uh, you know, who both of whom have resistance to the idea of the rock band or the rock song. Um, you can hear that that's starting to want to happen in some, some certain ways on this record. And yet, finally, I think the band is still entrenched in the band formation, and the songs are still entrenched in, you know, kind of the classic rock album, you know, five or six songs on a side uh, format. And... Um, that wins out. It becomes a rock album produced by Brian Eno. But when you know where they're going to go, and then you listen to something like Drugs, uh, you realize, oh, this is actually a sonic collage where the band has been turned into a series of loops and, um, and where found audio has been thrown in. There are a couple of important precedents for that in Eno's work in the year or two prior to that. I'm thinking specifically in relation to drugs, actually. there's I don't know if you know this. There's a uh, the B-side to King's Lead Hat is a track called RAF, which Eno recorded with um, Judy Nylon and Patty Paladin, who were a duo called Snatch. And it Never heard this. It really intriguingly anticipates a lot of what was coming first on drugs and then really specifically on my life in the bush of ghosts in terms of hear this. The other track I would I would lob as I would lob at you as having been a sort of an important Precursor is was recorded just before Fear of Music. Um, uh, Eno had contributed to Bowie's Lodger record, right? Of course. And yeah. there's that track African Night Flight, mm-hmm. which That's seems to yeah. which seems to link really directly. That seems to be the the path to Izimbra.
That makes a lot of sense. But it's also funny because when you, I mean, obviously, Talking Heads had made an enormous impact because you hear both in King's Lead Hat, Eno kind of emulating a Talking Heads song, and and on on that Lodger album, which I loved at the time, uh, I am the DJ is Bowie aping. Uh, a David Byrne vocal, you know, trying to trying to listen to the new thing and figure out how to do it right. in his typical chameleon way. And I guess we have to, since we talked about King's Light Hat, even parenthetically, we, we have to mention that anagrammatically, that, that is an anagram of talking heads oh, yes. for people that aren't us and <laughs> may not have ever encountered that factoid. Um, but African Night Flight seems very much, uh, that much like Ezimbra is a kind sure. of an idealized, non-authentic portrait of something that might kind of almost be perfect it it makes total sense and i know that track so well and i've never related the two but it really does fit and you know i I write about my resistance to ezimbra it's very seductive it's impossible not to kind of like it's it's just does its thing conceptually doubted it. In some way, it seemed like the, the the fake on an album of completely earned gestures. I felt there was something uh, uh, bogus about it. And so, I, you know, one of the things you do when you write a book like this is you let yourself, because you need a narrative, you need tension yourself, you let yourself exaggerate any, uh, any grudges. You know, so in a funny way, um, although I love Brian Eno, I, I've I've spent so much of my life listening to and exploring, you know, music that he made or led me to in some way. And I love that record and his imprint on it is marvelous. In some way, I made him the, like, the villain in the show because I needed a, you know, I ne- you need a villain to make a good story. And so it was his impingement on on the the formation of the band that became the kind of, like, the dubious prospect, the shadow lurking. And similarly, among the songs, Izumbra kind of plays the foil for me a little bit. And now I really love it, and I listen to it gladly. But um, I always felt, in some way, Izumbra got too much credit for being a precursor to the, the greatness of the of the next record of of Remain in Light. And I always thought Drugs was undersold as actually sounding more like what was coming than Izumbra. Well. Some of that has to do with a very 20th century concept, which is the sequencing of albums. Ezimbra comes first, right. so sure. it's it's unavoidable, and Drugs kind of plays us out at the end. This would be a very different record if the chronology of those two songs was was flipped. Right, but also it has to do with a press release. I mean, I think basically Eno and Byrne wanted to talk about something other than rock and roll, and so they put out a, a very preemptive missive sort of saying uh look at this we're we're thinking about african music now and everyone bit on it and you know the the funny thing about it is Ezimbra isn't what remain in light sounds like <laughs> drugs is and you know the procedures that they used to arrive at Ezimbra, this ostensible vision of the future they would never go back to exactly which is uh them chanting german dada poetry the procedures that they would use for drugs are exactly what they would go to again, which is burying the voices, masking the voices, and using found snippets. That may be even more correct than you know, in fact. At a granular level, when you listen to the Fear of Music multitracks, 
most of those songs don't present an engineer with a great deal of options. Those songs are very set in their ways. Those songs want to be mixed in one specific way, the way that we hear them. The major exception to that on Fear of Music is drugs. Oh, it must be. The multitracks for drugs are some of the most fascinating things I've ever heard, and there are there are all kinds of options for what could have been done. Um, the album version is one. Uh, the version that's on the the once-in-a-lifetime box set, um, which I assembled with, with Brian Kehue, the engineer, um, which reincorporates the frippertonic guitar loop that, was, that, that was lost, and lots and lots of other sounds that weren't used. That's that's another, but there are there are literally you could mix it twenty other ways and it would be equally valid. All I see is little dots. Some are smear, some are spots. And the Remain in Light material lends itself to that approach as well. Um, I can remember having the overload up in the studio one evening while we were listening through those reels. And that's literally a song that you could mix. You could Any random combination of faders on that track would sound fascinating. Uh, you could listen to it for days. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I feel that way about drugs that I, you know, I'd, I'd listen to as many alternate takes or alternate constructions of that song as 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 there could be, and uh, it's uh, it's also I think it's um, it anticipates in a strange way the the album's you know that's the last song on the on, on the on the album and it it offers an exit from some of the um, problems that the album presents because it is weirdly enough a return to the body it's it's about uh, getting up and moving and thinking you look funny and that being okay. It sort of describes what David Byrne was about to start doing as a dancer and performer. I study motion. Yeah, exactly. But E. Zimbra is kind of an answer too. I guess E. Zimbra seems to me um, to claim that the problem's already solved. And I'm more interested in seeing it be solved. I feel like the enactment of the solution is a lot more inviting than the uh, sort of all the, oh, I think this is a, Grill Marcus phrase, all the tests have been passed and what you are seeing is the results. <laughs> that makes sense. But you don't feel like, I, I, I sort of feel like Zimmer's there. Yep, there's your answer. Here's all the questions. As a, as a language guy, I, um, I think Zimmer points in the direction that Eno, I know, is, is very influential in. And it's the, it's the development I like least, even as it produces the next masterpiece, Remain in Light, which is the dissolving of sense. I mean, I actually don't want them to stop making sense. I kind of like it when they are struggling uh, with how uncomfortable it is to be making some sense. And that's, to me, that's the description of, of Fear of Music. And I, it's like, I, I wish I could lock them into that commitment. And Eno says, and, and E. Zimbra is the ultimate banner under which he, he says it. Eno says, lyrics secretly don't matter at all. You could be saying anything. Well, you spent some time talking about this in the book, the idea that words fail, and the idea of the failure of words is, is something that, that crops up over and over and over again throughout this record and, and throughout the book. Yeah. yeah, well, I think words are a, 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 a collapsing universe, but we live in it. So I don't, I don't want to fail to acknowledge how kind of unsustainable the system is, but I also don't want to pretend that I'm outside of it. 
uh, and I, I really like the tension that that produced for those songs, um, except for Izimbra, which just celebrates, uh, you know, a post, post-linguistic realm. Right. I mean, for, for people who might not know or who may not be familiar with it, the, the text for that, the lyrics that are sung in that song, are they're taken from a, a poem by Hugo Ball, uh, the Dadaist, and and essentially they're just a bunch of gibberish phonemes that he constructed. I mean they're not. Complete. I mean they sound they sound really intense. When I thought they were words that I could work out, I was terrifically excited about them. But knowing that they're a refusal to mean seems to me uh, not a cop out. I'm really here. I am doing it again. I'm, I'm making it into the you know the uh, the bad guy on the album. It's just um, it's saying it's saying uh, don't come here for language. It's 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 saying nobody home. And, um, of course, secretly, everybody's home. <laughs> We're all there anyway. We're all under that, you know, under that manhole cover when you pry it off. We're all in the van, loaded with weapons, you know, having to cope. Well, on that note, thank you. My pleasure. What a, what a great talk. Our guest today has been Jonathan Lethem, who is the author of Talking Heads, Fear of Music. It's a 33 and a third book. It's available now. I'm Andy Zacks. Thank you very much for listening, and thanks to Oliver Wang for recording. This podcast is a production of the Los Angeles Review of Books. For more information, check out lareviewofbooks.org.